Thank you so much, Andrew. That is a, Andrew's prayer is a perfect introduction to what I want to share with you this morning. If you have a Bible with you, um, I invite you to turn to John chapter 7 and verses 37 through 52. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 52. If you're watching by live stream this morning, um, obviously we, as Pastor Chad mentioned earlier, want to welcome you. And if you are sitting at home and you don't have access to a Bible, that's okay. Uh, the verses that I'm using will all at one time appear on the screen for your benefit. Well, the context of what we're looking at, and I've shared with you the last few weeks, is Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. He is at the temple in the courts. And this section right here is a longer section, verses 37 through 52. And this is something that all pastors and teachers wrestle with. How much of a section do I deal with? Do I divide this? Do I do it as one big section? And this section happens to go together. It really can't be separated. So that's why we were looking at a section that's a little bit longer this morning. And Jesus, it really brings us to the end of Jesus' sermon at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Jewish people at this time in history had three great feasts where they would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. One was Pentecost, one was Passover, and the other is this, the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And so there are thousands of people in Jerusalem at this time, many of them listening to Jesus as he teaches in the temple courts. And this is what we read on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is a very important section of Scripture. All Scripture is important, but this a powerful invitation, a powerful invitation from Jesus. 
And that is our first point this morning, the great invitation. In fact, that is what this passage is known as, the great invitation. In our passage this morning, Jesus proclaims one of the greatest invitations found in the entire Bible. And it is primarily found in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, this may remind you, if you've read through the Gospel of John, if you've been with us for this sermon series, this may remind you of Jesus' encounter with a woman at the well in John chapter 4. And if you thought that, you are correct. Because in essence, what is happening, what Jesus said to the woman individually in John chapter 4, he now says to this great throng of people, at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, and that is significant this morning. I want you to know this morning that that is an important statement in this passage and one we need to understand. And so let me give you a little bit of background. I want to give you some biblical background and some historical background. We are fortunate to have reef sources today where we can find out what happened at the Great Feast during this particular period of history. Biblically, the primary passage for the Feast of Tabernacles is found in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. But the Feast of Booths, so the Feast of Tabernacles, was a seven-day feast where the children of Israel at this time would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they would bring, according to Leviticus 23, they would bring palm branches and branches from other leafy trees. And they would make booths for themselves here in Jerusalem. They would live in these temporary shelters to remind them that the children of Israel, when they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, that's what this feast was about, they were remembering the wilderness wandering for 40 years under the leadership of Moses. That all 40 years, God provided and cared. In essence, he saved his people through those 40 years. And all 40 years, the children of Israel lived in temporary shelters. And so they in essence, imitate that at this great feast. But as I mentioned, it is those first couple of phrases that are so important. On the last day of the feast, the great day. Don't miss that. That's why every word in the Bible is so important. On the last day of the feast, the great day. Why was it called the great day? Where here's why. On the last day, on the seventh day, there was an altar in the middle of the temple court where they would make sacrifices. But on this particular day, people would take some of their branches and they would lay them onto the, or on the side of the altar or pile them on the side of the altar. And then the high priest at that time would take a pitcher, a golden pitcher, and he would dip it into the pool of Siloam. And he would take that pitcher of water and he would pour it on the altar with those branches around it. And it reminded the people of Israel that God provided water out of a rock when they were in the wilderness wandering at Meribah. 
And so this was a great event. This was like at the culminating point of the feast. He would pour this pitcher of water. They would remember that God provided water out of a rock. And when the high priest did that, the people automatically knew they would do three different things. First, they would all in unison quote from Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3, which says, With joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. O Lord, with joy you will draw from you will draw water from the wells of salvation a great picture of salvation secondly they would in unison sing the great hallel the hallel was psalm chapters 113 through chapters 118. They would sing the words of all of those psalms. They had become songs that the people knew, and so they would sing the Hallel. And then after they sang the Hallel, then the children of Israel, at this time in the first century, they would march around the altar in the temple courts seven times. Seven times they would march around that altar. And they and you may be already thinking this with me, when they marched around that altar seven times, it reminded them that the children of Israel marched around the walls of Jericho seven times. And when they marched around the seventh time, the walls of Jericho fell and the children of Israel conquered Jericho. Why would that be brought up at this time? Why was that important? Well, here's why. When the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River, and they went into the land of Canaan. The very first city that they conquered was the city of Jericho. And when the walls of Jericho fell down and they conquered Jericho, it was at that time that the 40 years of wilderness wandering came to an end. It still to this day marks for the children of Israel the end of the 40 years of wilderness wandering when the walls of Jericho fell. And so... We have this great proclamation of Isaiah 12.3. We have them singing the Hallel. And we have them march, marching around the altar seven times. And this is the setting that Jesus uses. And it says in verse 37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. As I mentioned to you last week, he didn't speak in some kind of casual monotone. He cried out to them. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Wow, can you imagine that scene in your mind? These thousands of people most likely listening to him. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There are three action words, three verbs here. Thirst, come and drink. If anyone thirsts, aren't you glad Jesus says that? If anyone thirsts, anyone, anywhere, in any part of the world, if you thirst, if you thirst. He's not talking about physical thirst. He's talking about spiritual thirst. If you are willing to acknowledge and admit that there is a hopelessness in your soul, that there is a meaninglessness in your soul that you wonder what's your purpose on this earth if your guilt if you're filled with guilt and shame because of sin 
and because of bondage to habits and sins in your life, if anyone is thirsty, let him acknowledge that. Let him say that I am thirsty. And then he says, let him come to me. I love that. If you're thirsty, if you're empty, come to me. He doesn't say come to some mystical, spiritual concept. No, he says come to me, come to the person. Come to me, to my person and work, the one who will die, the one who will rise again and complete a full and free salvation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Let him see Jesus as the only true source of salvation, the only one who can satisfy your soul, the only one who can quench your thirst. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The word drink here is a synonym for believe. It is a synonym for believe. It, what it, it's what it means to believe. It means to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. It means to invite him to come into your life, to ask him to come into your life. It is to embrace him, surrender to him, submit to him, however you want to term it. It means to come and let Jesus sit on the throne of your life and take control of your life to save you, to forgive you, to be your Savior and Lord. What a great statement. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and let him drink. Let him drink. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. If anyone thirsts, if anyone is willing to admit that they have sinned and there is nothing they can do to resolve their sin or to forgive their sin, let them come to Jesus. Let them come to the Savior. Let them come to the one who died and rose again. Let them believe with all their heart that Jesus is the only provision for their salvation, the only one who can forgive them, and let them drink. Invite them to believe. Invite them to drink. Show them how they can bow their heads and in prayer invite Jesus to come into their life, to receive him as Savior and Lord. Actually, all of this is what the word believe means. The word believe is so strong, we water it down so much in our English language, but in the original language, it is such a strong word. It means to thirst, to know you are thirsty. It means to come to Jesus. It means to believe. It means to invite, embrace, submit, surrender to him, to give your life to him, to let his life come and live inside of you. So that's the great invitation. And in verse 38, he talks about the result of the great invitation. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, literally means out of his inner being. Some translations have out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. When Jesus comes to reside in a person's life by means of the Holy Spirit, he is not a bucket, he is not a pool, he is a fountain that turns into a river of living water that flows in you and through you. It gives you resurrection life, abundant life, new life. And it literally flows in you and it flows through you and you become a witness to the world around you, not only your local community, but to the whole world you become a witness. 
Whoever believes in me, out of his inner being will flow rivers, rivers of living water. It reminds us so much of what Jesus said to the woman at the well. He said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's exactly what Jesus says here. What an invitation. What an eternal, timeless, incredible invitation of anyone thirsts. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, everything that Jesus promises in verses 37 and 38 will be fulfilled when he sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of those who believe. In verse 39, it says, Now this he said about the Spirit. Notice, capital S, Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit had not yet come in a permanent way to indwell believers, but it soon would. He soon would, I should say. In the months to come, not many months from now, Jesus would be crucified. He would rise victoriously from the dead, conquering sin and death, and he would gloriously rise to the right hand of the Father on high, and he would send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would come to reside in, indwell in those who believe. In John chapter 16 and verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper... Now notice here, if you have the English Standard Version, helper is capitalized, and it should be, because it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell you, to live in you, to permanently seal you. And we see this fulfilled in a dramatic way in Acts chapter or yeah, chapters 1 and 2 where about 120 believers are gathered in the upper room. And they hear a great sound as if a wind and tongues of fire come to rest upon them. And they begin to speak in other languages. And from that point forward, the Holy Spirit immediately indwells people at the time of belief, at the time of conversion. He indwells them. Jesus resides in them through the Holy Spirit. And they are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. So we have this great invitation from Jesus. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Well, that brings us to our second point this morning, and that is four different responses. Four different responses. After Jesus proclaims the great invitation, we see four different responses from the people gathered at the Feast of Booths. The first group, 
The first response are those who believe. Look at verses, yeah, verse 40 and the first part of verse 41. When they heard these words, the words of the great invitation, some of the people, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. There are people who believe. They embrace him. They receive him as Savior. They believe that he is the one who is to come. And notice, and we looked at this earlier in the Gospel of John, this really is the prophet. Not a prophet, but the, pro the prophet. We looked at this in John chapter 6 after the feeding of the 5,000, where the people said, this is indeed the prophet. You see, the children of Israel were looking for the prophets. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said to the children of Israel, he said, the Lord God is going to raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. And when he comes, listen to him. And so the children of Israel had waited for centuries for the prophet to come. So when they say this, it's important. This really is the prophet, the Savior who is to come. Others said this is the Christ, which is the New Testament word for Messiah. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. Don't miss it, folks. This is a great harvest of souls. It is likely that some of these people are part of the 120 in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. They believe. They acknowledge their thirst. They come to Jesus and they drink. But there is a second group. The second group are those who reject Jesus. In the last part of verse 41 through verse 44, it says, But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Ah, there are skeptics and cynics. Is the Christ to come from Galilee? There was a real prejudice at this time toward people that came from Galilee. It was seen as backwards. They were seen as kind of uneducated and uninformed, the people from Galilee, not like the more sophisticated people from Judah and Jerusalem. And it was thought that the people from Galilee were heavily influenced by the Gentiles. And you know that because in the Gospels it says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is in Galilee. And so they said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So now they're saying, well, the Christ is going to come from Bethlehem, which is so interesting because we just saw last week that they said when the Christ comes, nobody will know where he comes from. Nobody will know where he comes from, ignoring the prophecies of Scripture. Well, now they're at least willing to acknowledge that the Christ will come from Bethlehem, but they ignore the fact of Scripture, the fact of prophecy, that he would also come from Galilee. We saw this last week, and I mentioned Matthew chapter 2 and verse 23. It says, Jesus went to live in Nazareth. So fulfilling what the prophet said, he will be called a Nazarene. That's what the prophet said. 
that he would come from Nazareth, that he would come from Galilee. So they are missing their own scriptures. But here's what's more important. When people don't want to believe in Jesus, they always come up with excuses. They always come up with reasons. They split hairs. They say, oh, the Bible doesn't say this, or the Bible doesn't say this, or this doesn't make sense to me. And they're saying, oh, can the Christ come from Galilee? Are you going to really tell me that the Messiah is actually going to come from someplace like Galilee? And so they come up with all these reasons they don't believe. Key verse is verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. There was a division at the Feast of Tabernacles. Some believed and some did not believe. And you know, over 2,000 years later, it's still the same. It's still the same. In January of 2021, it's still the same. Some believe and some reject. Some believe and some don't. So that's the second group of people. The third group, some people are confused about Jesus. I would call these the people that are wrestling with Jesus. They don't know what to think. Look at verses 45 through 49. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Why are you coming back without arresting him? Watch what the officers say. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the, the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So interesting. The officers were sent to arrest him and they come back. And they didn't have him. And they said, why not? And they said, because no one ever spoke like this man. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. No one ever taught like Jesus did. Earlier in John chapter 7, it says that they marveled at his teaching. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as I mentioned before, at the end of Matthew chapters 5 through 7, it says when Jesus finished teaching, the people were astonished and said he speaks with authority not like our scribes and teachers. So they're wondering. They, they didn't even arrest him because they're like, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever taught like him. And that makes the Pharisees incredulous. They're upset. And they're not like, or they're like, have you also been deceived? Are you that gullible? Are you that naive that you would also believe what he says? Then they want to know, have any of the authorities, have any of the Pharisees believed in him? They said, that's what happens with this crowd that does not know the law. They're accursed. And so really the second group is condemning the third group. Because in the third group are the soldiers, the officers. They're wondering, who is this man? Who teaches like this? And then there's a fourth group. I would call this group the people that are under deep conviction. The Holy Spirit is really convicting them. They are at the doorstep of believing. They're at the precipice of receiving Christ as Savior. They're right there. They're right there. It says in verses 50 through 52, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. There's good old Nicodemus. We haven't seen him since John chapter 3 when he came to Jesus by night and Jesus told him that he needed to be born again. 
Here he shows up again, and we don't know where Nicodemus is at at this particular point, but he's defending Jesus. We do know later on that Nicodemus is a believer. He comes very boldly at the cross after Jesus is crucified. He comes very boldly with Joseph of Arimathea, and they take the body of Jesus, and they prepare it, and they bury it in the tomb and have the stone rolled in front of it. So we do know that he becomes a believer. But notice here it says... Nicodemus, who had gone before them and who was one of them. He was one of the Pharisees. He says, how can you judge a man without listening to him, without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? At least listen to him. And notice how upset the Pharisees are. Are you from Galilee too? Are you persuaded by this man? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee, which was not true. Again, they were misapplying, misinterpreting their own scriptures. Not only was the Messiah to come from Galilee, Jonah came from Galilee, Nahum came from Galilee, Hosea came from Galilee. And yet they say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So here are these four responses to the great invitation. Some believe, some reject. Some are confused. They're really thinking about this. Who is this man? And there are some. There are some who are right on the borderline. Don't ever forget about those people. You know why? Because they're all around you. People who under deep conviction, they're thirsting. They're thirsting. They've heard about Jesus. They're ready to believe. They just need someone to show them how. They're always there. But as we think about these four responses, the most important question is this. What is your response to the great invitation? What is your response? We could talk endlessly about how the others responded. We could do sermons on each of the groups and how they responded. But what about me? What about Pastor Chad? What about everyone here? What is your response to the great invitation? You may have already noticed this, but I just want to point it out. This is a wonderful gospel outline for you to use. It is. It is so simple. It is so simple for anyone to use. You can present the gospel to someone just using verse 37. If anyone thirsts, if anyone that you know is willing to admit their sin to acknowledge their sin and that they can't save themselves. If anyone thirsts, let him come to Jesus. Tell them that Jesus is the only way. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Tell them that. Tell them that, that the only source of forgiveness, of salvation, of eternal life is Jesus, and then simply invite them to drink, to believe. Tell them to believe and receive Jesus. Again, show them how they can bow their head and pray a prayer to invite Jesus to come into their life. Let me ask you this morning. Have you ever made a conscious, deliberate decision in your life? Can you remember a time in your life 
where you invited Christ to come into your life? Are you sure this morning? If you're not sure, if you've never done that, we want you to be sure. And we invite you to come to Jesus. If you're thirsty this morning, if you feel that emptiness, that meaninglessness, that purposelessness, if you feel that deep in your soul, we invite you to come to Jesus and to ask him to come into your life. Simply admit that you have sinned. Believe with all your heart that Jesus died and rose again, not just for sin, but for your sin. And ask him to come into your life. You can do it right where you sit this morning. You can do it when you leave this morning. But we invite you to respond to the great invitation. If anyone thirsts, anyone, let him come to me and drink. Let's pray together. Father, help those who are thirsty. Help them, Father, to come to Jesus. Help them to drink deeply of the everlasting life that is found in him. And Father, for those of us who know Jesus, for those of us who know Jesus, help us to be faithful in sharing the great invitation to come to the Savior, to come to our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.